Hello. Welcome to the Circle Stories podcast, where we aim to explore the stories within, between, and around the various circles we inhabit in our lives. today to Brian Ammons, a good friend of mine. Um, he's in several of my circles, but one of them is um, the Circle of Mercy uh, Faith Community. How are you today? I'm doing okay, Carl. How are you doing? Good, good. I'm doing all right. It's a, it's a Monday, but it's okay. Um, <laughs> I've been starting most of my, uh, my conversations with my guests with the check-in. I guess you know where I got this from because I got it from my, from my men's group and um, <laughs> I found it very, very helpful to do and, and my guests have in, enjoyed it as well. So if you want to give me a high and low for, for the week or for today, or you choose. Sure, sure. So I'm checking in. Gosh, it's such a complicated time to do this. So I'm checking in with a, with some joy on top. Underneath that, I still have some, some sadness and fear. So I guess the overall feeling is probably excitement, mm-hmm. um, which is that sort of joy and fear mixed up together. I'm, you know, so the, the Supreme Court decision today was a, is a big deal. It was a really big deal. And it also has been a big chunk of my morning reading about stuff going on in Atlanta. So um, I recognize just this weird moment that we're in where it feels like change is happening. And it also feels like there's a lot of, a lot of grief and all that's kind of coming uh, right on top of each other and right beside, right beside each other. So, so it's a little bit hard to, to put my finger on exactly what I'm feeling. But those are the things that are, that are up for me. Yeah, that's, I guess my high and low is embedded in that. Sure, so yeah. It's intense stuff. And I'm thinking about friends in Atlanta and friends, you know, friends across the country that are involved uh, directly on the streets. Right. And in this, you know, powerful movement. So anyway, I'm, that's kind of where I am. I'm sorry, I don't know that I'm being terribly articulated, no. articulate about it all, but I'm, I, I had taken a bit of a social media Sabbath for the last day and a half, so it was, um, I'm getting caught up. No, so. Thank you for that. Uh, when I when I started this back even a month ago, none of the protests had even started. So I had um, thought, well, maybe we could document this time around COVID and how it's affected our lives. And then all of a sudden, you know, we have we have the new the new issues around Black Lives Matter and and the actions there. I'm just wondering if how you're handling the the what seems to me like a piling on of, hmm. of anxiety and. Uh, issues upon issues and and I mean we were already dealing with one thing and and that was pretty heavy in in the pandemic and then sure so you know I think there's a yeah I mean certainly summer of 2020 will be one that that we remember um and and my hope is that it's um it's part of uh what uh Joanna Macy Gareth has me reading Gareth my husband has me reading all this Joanna Macy stuff right now which she talks about as the as the great turning and and I, I think we are in the midst of that, and I know that that's that's messy messy work. So I I I guess I feel like what was being surfaced in the early days of COVID also is tied up in in what's happening with Black Lives Matter. I mean, we were seeing the evidence of tremendous uh, economic and health disparities. So I, I don't think that they're unrelated. I mean, I don't think that it is. And I think there's something about um, being in this moment where we were already kind of plugged into a shared communal experience. And I think where folks were restless and folks are paying attention, are spending more time online and reading. And so I, I, I'm, I'm curious as to sort of what are all the factors 
factors that led to mobilizing the middle. Um, mm. Cause it feels like there's a, you know, a lot of my friends that have been involved with this work have been involved with this work for a long time. Right. So there's a question as to sort of why this summer, why in the midst of this COVID thing is this when things seem to be taken hold that feels like real moments of culture shift. Why are we having finally having different, different conversations around, uh, around police, uh, around the nature of policing um, in general? Um, why are we in this moment finally having the space where the movement around Confederate flags and Confederate monuments is taking hold in a way that feels more mainstreamed? Um, what if this has to do with our current election cycle? Like, there's just so many things that are coming in this confluence of that are making this moment. And part of it is, for me is trying to figure out how do I just uh, stay present to it and stay grounded and while I'm managing all kinds of transition in my own life, you know, like how, what's it mean just to be in this moment of upheaval and simultaneously be in this moment of upheaval while I'm sitting at home more than I ever have. <laughs> so right, right. It's, it's a, um, no, you're right about the similarities because when, when we were done being shocked about what was going on and, and the quarantine and everything, I think we moved into a, what's the new normal going to look like? And then, mm -hmm. well, what don't we want to bring back? what positives right. could come out of this. And this was already affecting the, the poor and disenfranchised more than the affluent, you know, COVID was when the George Floyd thing happened and and the movement behind that came. You're right, a lot of the issues were were similar and at least, you know yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I think it's, uh, you know, it's, um, it's so much harder for a, a moment to become a cultural moment. Uh, you know, I, this is going to seem like a really shallow uh, shift in directions, but just hang with me on it. You know, anybody that was alive in 1984 knows kind of the top 10 pop songs from 1984, right? Sure. There were only so many media outlets. Like we were tuned, we were saturated in, in sort of a, a monoculture that, uh, that was uh, curated for us differently, right? Right. Um, and so there's something that's happened, I think, that because we're all in the space of, uh, of paying attention so much more to things that are, uh, that are going on, because we're, we're on our screens differently, that it seems like, it, like the saturation was easier. I don't know if any of this is true or makes, even makes any sense, I'm, I, but I'm just, I'm curious as to, you know, why is it that um, now versus Ferguson, why is this taking hold differently? And how much of that, there, and there's so many factors that play play into it. And oh, we can go so back to Ferguson. We can go back to Amado Diallo. We can go back. Oh, right. I mean, right. so these things have been happening for decades. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, right. Um, we've been tearing down statues since Charlottesville. Um, right. But you're, you're right. This moment, this time is different. It feels different. It's moved into the... The, the the center has been mobilized, you know, like, and I'm not sure what all goes into it. Um, but but that I, gives I, me a lot of hope because, you know, I, I constantly see that we're even more polarized because we're in our own bubbles. So if you're seeing some kind of movement and, and drive in the center, that just gives me a more hope because that means that we're not just so um, polarized, that there is something to, to get together on. I'm, I'm encouraged to hear that. Yeah. And I think there's a, you know, when, when NASCAR is taking actions that are long overdue and in some ways just feel a little bit, I mean, it's hard for me to get my head around as to how that hasn't, that this is a new action. 
And it also feels like there's just a shifting tide. Like you can't get away with um, what people have been able to get away with. So it, it sort of feels to me like it did about um, six or seven years ago around LGBT stuff where we were going like, okay, maybe in my lifetime we might see marriage equality. Right. And then suddenly like over a summer, it felt like, oh my goodness, what happened? Right. Over I mean, the course how long of a year. Yeah. How long ago was Prop 8 in California? Was that the one right. that was, right? Um, right. So Prop 8 was, uh, I don't know, it was uh, about a decade ago. Yeah. Um, a long time ago in the, yeah. in the movement sphere. But right. I know, right. yeah, I know other people that have mentioned that too. They're like, I'll never see marriage equality in my lifetime. And then it all of a sudden it was It happened here. overnight. Right. Yeah. So I don't know what creates those moments. Um, so my hope now is that in this confluence of the pile on that there's also a, a moment of saying enough um, and that that moment of saying enough is is being picked up by broader and broader circles so that there actually might be some real real hope for cultural change so there's still uh, you know I'm not I don't think I'm naive in that I'm not and I don't want to make uh, say like it, it feels problematic for the narrative to mostly be about like hey here's all this hopeful stuff that's coming on in the midst of uh, all the death and violence but I, I I also think it's part of the story. So part for me is part part of the work of the summer is to try and figure out how to live in all of the stories that are surfacing. Then just to be present to all of what we're being invited to. And so yeah, that's kind of where I am. That's what's going on. I don't it feels like it's heady and um, not thoroughly worked through. And I'm sure that there's better there's people that can speak to it more articulately than I can. But no, um, I love it. I'm, I think that's I'm some gonna, of what's going on for me. I think I'm going to clip that and use it for my uh, promo. It's like <laughs> you're talking about circles. You're talking about interactions of circles. You're talking about living our stories and how they're um, interacting with other stories. And, and mm -hmm. this is this is exactly what what I I want to talk about. Yeah. And um, eventually, I will be brave enough to reach out to people that don't I don't agree with on certain issues and talk to them and and enter a dialogue with them well here I am see I'm using the us and them thing again and I catch myself doing it I catch myself using language that is problematic and, and what well, it's hard I mean I think we can't we can't deny particularity and fragmentation right so there are spaces in which we group ourselves um, and I think we have to acknowledge that if we're going to try and do change work right it's because change work needs to be focused and Conversations need to be thinking about sort of how are we crossing whatever demographics that we're crossing? How do we stand in those in-between spaces? And, you know, we can have some influence with folks that are, you know, one or two ticks on either side of where we are, right? Sure. So figuring out where our sphere of influence is, right? I recognize that I've got friends that are are standing in places where they're bridging into more moderate worlds that I don't have access to, but I do have access to those friends, you know? Mm -hmm. So how do I kind of create spaces between some of my really radical friends and some of my more moderate friends. And that might be where I'm most effective. That doesn't mean that I don't have a handful of relationships with folks that are um, uh, much, uh, much further away from how I would articulate my worldview. Uh, but those, most of those relationships are based in historical realities, right? So they're friendships from other points in my life. Um, and we share a lot of story and a lot of love that's going to hold that together so we can do that. I get that the people that may be the people that change their minds are probably a little closer into them than I am. So if I'm but, thinking but, about sort of what's my big strategy, where do I focus my energy right now? It feels like what I'm being asked from particularly from a couple of friends of mine who are people of color that do a lot of organizing work, um, particularly black folk 
who are doing a lot of organizing work. I'm being asked to stand in the space of saying, okay, talk to your well-meaning white liberal friends and let's talk about how y'all can show up. Mm -hmm. um, and so it feels like that's where a lot of my energy and focus is right now. And you're talking about your friends that are one or two ticks away. Well, they mm -hmm. have friends that are one or two ticks away. Exactly. And, and, and it's going to ripple. And that's, and that's, I think that's the way that change happens. I mean, interpersonally and right. Yeah. I think Mahan said it. I, I can't remember if it was Mahan or Ken, but it's not going to come from the top down. It's going to mm -hmm. come from us down here, making those relationships and having those hard conversations. And I, I do think change work is relational work. I mean, I, I, I think that's, I, I think it's going to happen um, in those ways. And so it's, I think it matters to work within our circles um, to figure out where do we have spheres of influence? Um, how do we learn what we need to learn so that we can show up in those spheres of influence? And, and to use the leverage our power and privilege in that. And it's power and privilege, not just from social location, but also from relationship and from the work of, of living and showing up with, with folks. So like you hold a privileged position in my life, Carl, but not just because you show up as a middle-class white guy, but because you show up as my friend, right? So, and those things both exist in there, right? So there's a, um, I don't listen to all middle-class white guys the same. There's people that have shown up with me and continue to show up with me that I'm going to be in conversation with differently. So I think there's spaces of getting, some of us are big public sphere kind of thinkers and voices. Some of us are very localized community um, kind of thinkers and voices. I tend to focus on the, on the latter. That tends mm -hmm. to be more where my heart and my energy is, is to say like, all right, I've got this circle. How do I, how do I work within this circle? Uh, to say like, how, how do I call us, prayerfully call us into who it is that, that, that we can be? And then how do we consider what other circles we're in? Uh, and some of that is about expanding our circles, but some of that's also about joining other circles. Yeah. Because um, expanding my circles often can look like a lot of white liberal folk uh, saying like, how do we get other people here that aren't here? We wish that we had, you know, why don't our black friends join our white liberal circles rather than saying, how, what's it mean for me to, um, to say, where are the spaces that we sit together? Where are the spaces, where are your circles? Black changemaker friends that aren't mine, that I need to respect, aren't mine to go to. But then how do I, I take what you're learning and what you're offering me and then use that in those multiple circles where I sit and get that sometimes those are intersecting, sometimes they're not. Yeah. You brought up NASCAR, which is, <laughs> no, it's interesting to me because I, I love auto racing. I love NASCAR. Do you really? And I as, know this as a, you know, I, I, well, I don't, I don't tell people because as a liberal, I'm not supposed to. I'm a, I'm a closet NASCAR lurker. Kind of. <laughs> but when I go to those truck stops and I see all those jerseys and, and hat and merch and stuff, I, like, I get a little excited. And I, I, have a, I have favorite drivers. and Oh, yeah. All right. You want to hear my NASCAR connection? What's that? Uh, my, my granddaddy did some, some work on cars for Junior Johnson. He was grinding gear shafts for him. Oh, wow. Um, so he's from, my granddaddy's from North Iredale County, which is... Yeah. Uh, just over the line from Wilkesboro. So from the heart of it, um, yeah. back before it was a thing. So like, I got enough, I got enough, uh, North Carolina boy in me. That you I, can, uh, well, <laughs> I've got my connections to it. Hey, so. so you throw that, you you throw that name around. That was a little bit before I got junior Johnson was <laughs> just a little in the sixties and seventies, but, uh, yeah, I still yeah. know who he is and, and how, <laughs> how much he's revered, but yeah. 
Well, my first teaching job was in Mooresville, um, right in the middle of, uh, like all the shops that, um, oh, okay. uh, that served and, and, you know, Earnhardt was based there. Gordon was based there back in the, at the time that I was there. Um, uh, so it was hysterical. The PTA like fundraiser at the first school that I served, uh, was mostly banged up parts from cars, NASCARs, oh, wow. cars that people would come from like three States away for the silent auction. Sure. To get a bumper that was, uh, or a fender that had been <laughs> from a specific yeah. race and a specific from a crash. Specific race. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was it, it was a trip. It was a very. I haven't been to the world. Hall of Fame yet, but I'm I'm still yeah. planning on going because it was an interesting world. And so I've been adjacent to it. It's yeah, not yeah. really quite in my world, but I've well, like adjacent. I said, I've been a closet lurker my whole life. Yeah, and, there you go. But now I'm out. So hey. <laughs> So, I'm an environmentalist who likes a gas guzzling <laughs> sport. Go figure. We're all complicated. A, yeah, we're all complicated, full of contradictions. <laughs> uh, you know, I, uh, but there is something about these things that have historically coded as, uh, as, as kind of a particular kind of whiteness. And so they become performative in the same sort of ways that like being the good white liberal on Facebook becomes performative. There's ways in which we, uh, we code our belonging in those certain circles. And I think I have always been drawn to trouble that coding. Hmm. I mean, I'm sitting here and I'm noticing here, I'm, I'm sitting here in a, in a trucker cap with the North Carolina flag on it. Um, that I like, there's been this part of me that's always been about living in between. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm, um, I love country music. I'm a Southern boy. I, like, and those are all parts of who I am um, in the same ways that though we run in circles where it's not as big a deal anymore. But I mean, there was a point in my life where being gay and Christian meant that I wasn't ever quite enough of either. Uh, so I think I've lived in those spaces and I'm drawn to them. And, and I actually think those points where we are standing in the in-between, where we don't fit neatly into categories, and we all have them. Um, right? We all have the places where our contradictions um, come to the surface. I think those are the places that we actually can be productive change makers. So that's part of the places that I feel called to work, right? Like I'm uh, deeply connected to my Southern identity um, and to Southern culture. And I grew up in sort of a Jimmy Carter South, mm -hmm. um, right? My mama is kind of, that, mm -hmm. that's the idea of Southerness that I was raised in. So, and I, I also recognize, you know, racial justice movements are, are also embedded in the South. I mean, when we talk about the Southern, it's, it's sort of whose history are we telling and whose story, and that there have been these, you know, progressive threads within Southern life um, for white folk as well, whose stories we, we don't come forward with. And there's sort of a progressive populism uh, that also exists alongside of the other stories. And not to deny those other stories, not to try and say like, hey, let me justify and work around the parts of my, family's history that are um, complicated and by qualifying them with these other parts that I'm more proud of. But I think it is also, I, I recognize that by owning those contradictions, by recognizing that, you know, in my blood is the story of ancestors all from North Carolina who fought on both sides of the, of the Civil War. I think that's, those contradictions and those points of tension are the places that I feel called to. So it's why I, so much of my activism has been around queer Christianities. And so much of my work has been around, you know, what's it mean to be a white Southerner that's doing anti-racist work? I mean, I, so that, those places for me 
Um, what's, you know, I do a lot of work on, on men and masculinity as someone who has functioned most of my life outside of uh, dominant normative masculinities, right? So I think those are productive places. And, and for me, some of the discernment of call to being a change maker, to being influential in our circles is about paying attention to those places. I, I trust in you, Carl, that if I go on a ramble and I'm not making sense that you'll stop. No, 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 this is great because, <laughs> because uh, in, in, in a way, my experience has been completely opposite. I, I've, you know, you're, you, I think you once told me that you've never lived um, farther than an hour on either side of I-40. And oh, it's not even, not even, not that even far. an hour. I've, I've never, I've never lived with the exception of two years. I've never lived more than five miles off of I-40 um, between Raleigh and Asheville. And those two years, I only got eight miles off. So it's a, and I take that back, maybe about nine, 10 miles off. So sure. it's been um, like that stretch of 40 from Raleigh to Asheville. You can pretty much document my whole life there. So you have this, you have this deeply ingrained sense of home and of, of, of presence in this, in this life, in this community. I've lived in eight states. I've moved 30 times since I was a baby. I've never, you know, home is wherever I lay my head kind of thing. <laughs> you know, I've never, mm-hmm. I never had a favorite team because, you know, we'd, we'd move every two years when I was a kid. So I, I just, I love that groundedness and perspective and solid footing that, that you bring to your life. Well, thanks for saying it, Carl. I mean, it, it, and it's a double-edged sword for sure. I mean, like it's, it, it was a, there was conscious intention around staying. Um, and uh, particularly through my twenties and thirties of feeling like, yeah, no, I'm, I need to stay. Um, and it's been interesting to enter into a season in my life where I'm probably more open to the possibilities of leaving than that, than I ever have been. So it is a, it's a strange thing. I mean, I don't, I, I think of myself as, as fairly broad-minded and, and in conversation with lots of different trains of thought and also I'm deeply parochial. I mean, like I am here. My worldview is, and what's normalized for me is very much, I can't pretend that it isn't based in a particular version of uh, of the South, right? right? And particularly of the sort of upper South and, and of the sort of North, North Carolina South. I have, I have my identity with North Carolina runs far deeper than my identity even as, as U.S. American. You know, there's limitations to that too, because I'm, I'm partnered to an immigrant. And so you know, my husband has a different perspective on the world that we live in. Um, and he's also from a culture that is also deeply invested in the sense of place. Right? Right. And, he's, and he's, his own identity is very much shaped in being from a particular part of Ireland, you know, um, in, the, in the North. Uh, and, and so we, we both carry that with us. And I, I think some of our journey is about how to hold on to the particularities of that and how it shapes our identity and also how to be open to a, a larger global citizenship and, and understanding sort of what's it mean to um, be called out into the world, which may or may not be being called to one of those two places. So that's the other thing that's going on in my life in the midst of COVID and and demonstration, peace demonstrations, um, justice demonstrations. Uh, this summer, it's around sort of, so what's next for us? You had, in January, you had a pretty clear idea of what, or <laughs> yeah. you had a more clear idea of what was what was coming yeah. down the pipe. And then- and we had at least an interim plan, yeah. Right, yeah. and then, yeah, then COVID, and then, yeah. Yeah, so our plan was to be over in Ireland right now, and we were going over for six months, and- and during that time, doing some discerning about if we were going to go back for a longer period, the plan being at least most of 2021, and, and maybe staying there longer, maybe coming back around here. 
And you know, what's interesting is we're still in some vague version of that, looking at we're probably going to spend six months there at the beginning of the year next year and still trying to figure out uh, where we're going to land after that. But we've also opened up to looking at other possibilities just beyond just kind of the greater Belfast area and the greater Asheville area Mm -hmm. and still feeling real, you know, tug and sense of belonging and connection here, um, particularly for me. Um, so I don't, I don't know where, uh, it's a strange thing to be at this point in my life and to be, uh, less sure of what's the next step than I ever have been. For my retired friends, this has been a, I think a less, you know, like they're looking at it. Like I get more time to write. I get more time to spend (laughs) with my kids. I get to, you know, but for us working folks and for us who are trying to discern our future, it's, it's been tough. I think I, I just talked to um, Jane Wilson, the younger mm-hmm. who just graduated. And, mm. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. So, you know, her transition has been interesting too. She didn't get to graduate. She did, she's going to UNC um, in August and she's looking forward to that. But you know, her, she was going to spend two weeks in New York city in the early part of June. Can you imagine right. had, had COVID not hit? She would right. have been there during that. Oh, right. Yeah. So, sure. you know, a huge opportunity for her missed, um, you know, it, yeah. it just coming from a place of privilege, we're talking about all the things that we can't have. Right. And how our plans have been messed up or whatever, but talking to Kelsey and who deals with a lot of isolated people anyway, you know, they're dealing with it in a completely different way. So sure. all of our experiences around this thing have been all over the place. And it just seems, it seems like everybody's stories are, are coming together, but I don't know. I don't know. Well, and the the part the part for me that feels like kind of the deeper consciousness is I'm guilty of that middle aged focus of you know who I am is what I do and I'm you know still being very much career defined and trying to shift out of that and I have been in a steady pattern of trying to shift out of that for a good decade but it's also still so much of uh, of how I I think about my identity and so part of this for me has been a a push to say, hey, the conversation for you isn't about shifting from one work identity to another work identity. Mm. It's about figuring out sort of what is your sense of call and vocation beyond work identity and can you trust that the work will emerge? And and not in this sort of really passive way, like boom, someday I'm going to get, the work will be there and will be clearly defined for me, but more that can I live in a, if, if I'm living out of who it is, who and how I'm called to be, then the what I do is going to um, is, is going to work itself out. Is it a male thing, a cultural thing, both? Because I've sensed that since I was 18, since I first started really working, that what I did was who I am. Those were yeah. so tied together. Is that? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there is a piece of it that's particularly enculturated for, uh, and that particularly has to do with the both masculinities. Yeah. And, and, it, and it's interesting that, you know, as a, uh, as a queer man, as someone that's, and I've been in two long-term partnerships, um, and in both of those, I was earning less, and the first one significantly less uh, than my partner. So I, and even with that, I, mean, I have less of that provider narrative perhaps than, than some, but even with that, I, I recognize that my conversations are, are framed around uh, when I meet people, then work becomes part of the ways I think about my identity. And I keep trying to push out beyond that and recognize that that is, at least for folks, uh, I mean, in, in middle age, it seems like it's so much of those stories. And, and then for folks that, don't, that aren't parents. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think for us, there's a whole other layer of that. 
That's true. Uh, of going, because it feels like the acceptable thing to, if you're going to shift away from saying my identity is about my work, then it's about my family. Um, yeah, yeah. And when we first meet somebody, we don't say, who are you? We say, what do you do? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's wrapped up in that whole getting to know you is what you do. Right. Where do you, where do you work? So recognizing, you know, my, you know, my identity is tied up in, and sitting with other people and the stories of their lives and, and, and in holding spaces for um, circles to form and communities to connect uh, and always with some sort of connection around that stuff and, and the intersections of justice, education and spirituality, like, right. Okay. I can say that's sort of what my vocational identity is. That's sort of what my life is about. Um, and I'm fortunate in that it feels like that's very much, it's very similar to what my, my partner's life is about. Um, that we do it in really different contexts. I tend to be very, very localized and he tends to think in a much broader kind of how we shape the conversation. I think you guys compliment each other wonderfully. It's, it's, (laughs) you have a big idea person and then you have a nuts and bolts. How are we going to get this done? (laughs) So, um, and I think that's a, trying to figure out how to hold on to both of those is, is interesting. And partly just when we're in a, I'm grateful you know, among the many privileges that we've got is that we've got that kind of clarity. Like, that's not the question. The question Mm -hmm. is the context. It's not the sort of what's at the heart of what we do or the heart of who we are. And, and, you know, I think marriages have vocations as well. So we have both of our individual vocations and we have a sense of, like, we know what we do together. Like, we know who we are together in the world and the ways that we impact our communities and are impacted by our communities. And I think in many ways, it feels like we've got more of that than a lot of, a lot of folks have. And we've been lucky to, to be able to lean into that question. It's just sort of where we're going to do it. Um, Right. And we're sort of, we're sort of, uh, so we're using this period of uncertainty. That's being decided Um, for you right now. You don't have that. (laughs) Right. You can't make that decision. Yeah. yeah, he probably rests with that a little better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> that's some of our personalities. So, yeah. So that's kind of what that's the other stuff that's up for us right now. And I think there is like the the larger stuff that's happening in movement work around us is part of it is uh, are we are we called deeper into that? Are we called to let go of this particular context and and move into other spaces that we can have some impact and be of use? So I don't know. That's what's up. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to talk about Bostock a little bit? Or I, I'm kind of interested in what your hesitancy was in terms of students and, and the covering of students. I mean, so this ruling is based on Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights mm-hmm. Act and a reading of you can't discriminate based on sex as including LGBTQ. So I'm wondering what your, um, I, I think you expressed some ambiguity on what how it might apply to students. Can you go into that a little bit more? It's not so much. Um, I'm just looking for people that know more than I do to help unpack that piece. So okay. my sense is that it, you know, because the case focused on employment, and right. so a lot of the rhetoric and coverage is focused on employment. Right. So I'm really curious about the implications for um, for students and what we can really count on based on this on this ruling, and particularly for having clarity around the necessity of schools to make accommodation for trans and non-binary kids. Okay. okay. So I just haven't, I, like, so I'm curious about what this means for that conversation. I see. Um, and I'm not sure if Title VII in and of itself gets us there or if it just yeah, I'm not sets sure. a precedent that yeah, I'm not makes sure it much harder. That. So that, that was the thing that I was, that I was looking for um, earlier this morning to, to see, like, I'm, I'm sure there's people out there that are doing that work. Um, right. And, and I'm just trying to figure that out. 
that was and, what I was. And one thing you about. might consider is that if it indeed makes accommodations for employment, and you have a trans teacher who needs right. to use a bathroom, or right. I mean, I, I, you say accommodations. I'm sure there's others, and I'll, I will definitely express my ignorance. But if you have a trans teacher, then that is going to automatically mean that there is a accommodation for the students as well. So, right. But again, so that's I don't know that I, much about Title Seven. So that, and again, that's just so part of my question is going like, okay, I know this is this seems like it has pretty direct implications for for what's going to happen in schools. I haven't seen that part being covered. So, and I know that wasn't the nature of the particular case. But if we're interpreting it to include LGBTQ folk. And it seems like that's going to have to have implications for education. So that's the part that I'm wanting to dig around on and, yeah, and understand no, a right. bit more. I'm sure so, there's people writing that right now, writing those blogs yeah. right now. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be interesting <laughs> because you're right. I think the, the big thing that came out of it was you can't get fired. Right. But this is going to be more wide reaching than that. Which Right. So now if we're applying uh, discrimination based on sex around uh, trans identities and LGBTQ expressions and yeah, no, it's, it's a game changer. It's a huge game changer. So part of me is just kind of going like, oh, wait, what's up? What are all the ripples? What all right. of, of the stuff that we've been working on? Um, and this was a really based on, right. This was a ruling based on statute instead of the marriage equality, which was a constitutional issue. So right. it can be very unlikely be tinkered around with by, by Congress in terms of restricting it. So the chances of it getting restricted more are not that's a positive that it's not going to get tampered with that way. But it's yeah, interesting, it's, you know, the marriage equality, it's like, okay, marriage equality was only one part. After that, you have to deal with spousal privileges. You have to deal with, you know, all of the things that go with a marriage contract and what that means to, so in this, this is going to have the same thing. It's going to have yeah. ripples out. Boy, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how that, how that yeah. works. So what we were talking about before you started recording was just that piece of going like, so my mind started pinging and going like, wait, what are the other stuff that we've been working on just got included in this um, as, as it ripples out. So yeah. that's kind of what I'm yeah. really, I'm curious about. And I, and I honestly, I was, I'm, I'm a little stunned still. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's not, it's not how I was expecting that to go. Yeah. So it's a, I think it's a really interesting moment and to have that. And, you know, there's also other things that the court's doing that is surprising me. I mean, they didn't take up the case around sanctuary and I, I'm, I, part of me just goes like, what is going on in this moment? <laughs> like what is up with the summer? And I'm grateful to have, to have those little, those little pieces in, in the midst of all of the chaos. So, yeah. um, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious as to how it's all gonna, how it's all gonna play out. Let's take a break. I know it's kind of late, but that flew by, right? We're going to hear from David Lamont and his song, Hope, after which Brian and I talk a little about what spiritual practice looks like in the summer of 2020. church burning down when the sun comes again the white and black men stand and stare at the soot on the ground they raise up their weapons and summon their strength and they cut at the wood with their swords they're striking their blows against hatred 
they're hammering nails into boards. I keep thinking I hear the four horsemen and turning around to see. It's just the Pony Express again, and they've got a message for me. for me that is up for me a lot these days is um is around spiritual practice Mm. and part of that i think is because of some of that is about being in this weird place of being kind of charged and amped and watching the news and and also being spending more time at home than ever and kind of living in that weird tension and and part of me is also just about trying to figure out how to pay attention to what feel like these huge social cultural questions and also and also stay grounded in and truths that feel like or inform these questions and are deeper and bigger than those questions. And so I don't, I don't, that's where a lot of my energy is now. And I'm not really sure uh, what my question is on it. I know that I mean, we sit, one of the circles we sit in together is a, is a men's group that's kind of, that's grounded in a prayer practice. I've been hanging out with some Taoist teachers and I'm going to be doing some stuff with some Buddhist teachers. So I'm solidly kind of, I'm solidly grounded in, Christian tradition, I'm also recognizing that there's stuff about contemplative traditions and, and other veins that are useful for me to pay attention to. That's the other thing that's up for me. 
Um, and when I'm thinking, when I'm talking with, with students and friends that are involved in activist work, particularly in change work, part of it is sort of how you sustain in yourselves and what are the practices that are grounding you. So there's a lot of, there's, that's the other place that my attention is going to right now. Was there was there a time in your life during spiritual formation that you chucked it all and said, screw this, I'm out, and rebuilt the framework in which you eventually lived into? Or Yeah, I would say, I'd say kind of yes and no. You know, I uh, my parents worked at a children's home. I grew up on campus there. That was the church of my childhood was the church on campus there. And this feels like, when I start talking like this, it feels like I'm coming out again. Um, but there's, I, I had these... Um, I had these kind of mystical experiences as a kid that I don't know how else to talk about. Um, They are described like that sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how else to talk about them. These kind of, this real sense of deep and intimate connection with God. And I can remember some very specific moments, but also just kind of a deeper awareness of being held and sort of just living in that presence. That was a big part of my childhood. And I, what happened for me was losing a connection between that and church. Mm. Um, so that was not contained with church, but church informed the way I talked about it as a kid. And then in adolescence and early adulthood, that link felt more tenuous. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, there's, it's a lots of long, complicated stories for that behind that. But I think I, but I, I don't know that I gave up on the longing for that connection, the sort of thirst for that connection again. Um, my practice has shifted and I was wandering a lot. And, but I still, I, I still had this like deep sense of, of God's presence um, and a deep longing to lean into that. And you were able but, to separate that from the church at some point. Yeah, I don't really know how that happened. I'm lucky that way. <laughs> there was some point for me that, you know, the church of the, at the Jones home that I grew up in, I got this real clear, your beloved child, God, nobody can take that from you kind of message. And so when they tried to take it from me, I was just like, no, you can't have it. I was, I was pretty clear. Like the conflict wasn't so much between me and God. It was between me and the church. Okay. Um, and uh, I'm grateful for whatever, it is the, that um, helped me be sure of that, both in my training and, and honestly, I think in those experiences of God that I had as a young person. It was like, this can't, what, what the church is telling me about who I am does not line up with my experience of God. And so I just had some clarity on that, that I don't. And you kept that part and said, well, I'll just find another church. Well, for a while, I was just like, I'm out. I'm not doing mm. church at all. And when I came back to church, I remember coming back to church. I was terrified that if I came back to church, then it meant that I was like that there wasn't a way for me to come back halfway. Like mm-hmm. I couldn't, I knew that I wasn't going to be somebody that could dip my toe back in. It's like, if I'm in, I'm in. And I remember sitting down with Nancy Petty, who's now the pastor at Poland, who was an associate and came on when May and was pastor there and sitting on her sofa and saying, I'm really scared to go back to church because I'm pretty sure if I go back, I'm going to seminary. That seems like a really dumb vocational, like a, a dumb career path you know, 15 years ago and committed to staying in North Carolina. There weren't that many job opportunities, but it's been pretty amazing the way that it's unfolded. Um, so yeah, I, I, it was more a, when I got introduced to liberation theology and when I, um, with Latin American liberation theology and, uh, and black liberation theology, and then later when I got introduced to queer theology and 
feminist theologies, it, it wasn't that they were saying something new to me as much as it was that they were giving language to something that I knew at a gut experiential level in my body, but I didn't know how to talk about. You didn't have the language for it. Does that make sense? Uh, like yeah, it was yeah. like, yeah. I was like, right, right. This is the, yeah. this is the Jesus I know. It's just not the one that I've been seeing um, in church. And I thought that I was kind of this freak out there going like, how is, where is this Jesus? Yeah. Being ta- like, how do we yeah. talk about this thing that I, um, that felt so, um, when you got a text and go, yeah, 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 what she said. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I've been trying to, yeah. I've been trying to say that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I remember particularly the first time I read Gutierrez, which I, I was like, I don't know, 21, 22. And I was the whole time, like my head was spinning. I was like bouncing as I was reading going like, yes, yes. I know this, this is, um, this is what that, what this is about. And, and was weird, you know, as a, uh, you know, a white Southern Protestant, man going like i don't what is it it took me years to then start finding other um i I mean i had this this real fear of going like am i co-opting theologies of um of particular lived experiences that aren't mine and then i was recognizing yes of course these are the folks that are teaching me how to speak about god Uh, how old were you when you entered seminary i was 27 okay i was 27 so i walked away from church when i was about 17, 18. Um, I had, I briefly kind of was a part of a church when I was teaching, but I actually would skip services and go out to have ice cream with the associate pastor afterwards. That was kind of my connection to that church. Like I went for a little bit and I was like, yeah, I can't really hang. But I, but I kind of uh, found my way in and reconnected and was part of a small group through that church. Um, and then left out again. It was, uh, so it was about just shy of 10 years. Um, and they were a dark 10 years. I mean, there's a lot of other stuff that happened in my life during that time. I, I missed church in really big and deep ways. Um, it, was, it was hard for me to be away from church. What were you doing um, between college and seminary? I was teaching. Oh, okay. Uh, I was a middle school teacher. Oh, okay. um, oh wow. Then, that's, yeah. now that's a calling. I, <laughs> I, I, substitute, I substitute taught for that age. And, oh, wow. That's, that's a brutal <laughs> age. I'm telling you. I don't. It's easier when you're in relationship with them in okay. an ongoing way than it is dropping in. Um, so there is a, uh, so I'll say that. And part of it, you just kind of have to get over yourself and go like, okay, this isn't about me, whatever they're bringing to me. Uh, most of it's not about me. And it's fun to watch. They're trying on new identities every day. And oh. It's interesting. I've taught from second grade through graduate school um, over the course of my career. And my favorite by far is middle school and undergrad. Really, um, okay. and they're actually remarkably similar in terms of the tasks they're trying to do. They're they're <laughs> like figuring out their identities, um, reframing their relationship with authority and systems and structures. Um, I can see these that. really intense process transition periods. They're kind of courted away. It's like okay, you're shifting from childhood into adolescence, now you're shifting from adolescence into adulthood, and these, um, and so there's something about that those times that are really, you know, malleable and formative and confusing and super intense. And I love it. And I've loved it. And I've been in mostly those two age groups for most of the last 25 years. And also might be part of why I'm, I'm kind of ready to do something a little bit different, right. but, <laughs> but it's been, um, uh, but I loved it. So yeah, I, I taught middle school. Um, I worked at NC state in a scholarship program for a little bit. I did a, 
a master's in special ed um, uh, and was teaching um, some in special ed contexts, and then I uh, and then went back to divinity school, and then came out of that into into youth ministry. Okay, um, and that was uh, the inaugural year of uh, Wake Forest Divinity. You were I was in the second class. You were in the second. I was in class. the second class. Okay. Yeah, but it was it was fun. It was fresh and and chaotic, and we were trying to figure out what we were doing, and had a a beautiful and intense uh, group of faculty that were trying to figure it out too. And we were all sort of saying, so what's it mean to do theological education in our context in this moment? How big was your um, class? There were, I think 26 of us, maybe 22, 23 in the year ahead of us. So there were less than 50 students my first year. And how many faculty um, for that kind of? Uh, like full time, I think there were six. I was going to say that there'd be a lot of overlap and yeah. So we knew them really well. Yeah. We knew them really well. And I mean, the school is still small. They still, I mean, it, it's still less than 150 students. It was at about 75 when I left and it now kind of hovers in the, um, but yeah, less than 150. And it's, I, I still think they're doing good stuff in the world. Proud to have been a part of that. But that was that too, again, I mean, there were parts of divinity school that were blowing my mind and were pushing me in, in all kinds of different directions, but a lot of the experience I think often for folks that go to Div school is that they find themselves out wandering in the desert. Like the faith that they grew up in starts to break apart and then they wander and then it starts to come back together. And I think I came in in the desert. Mm -hmm. I was kind of like starting to pass through into getting these glimpses of like, okay, here's what the next thing's going to look like. But my container had already broken. I mean, mm -hmm. that was... Um, the strange thing was that, you know, like I went to divinity school around the corner from where I grew up and, and around the, you know, within a mile of the church that had not been the children's home church, but the other church that had been a place of great wounding for me. So, um, I was back in my hometown and kind of wrestling with all kinds of ghosts. It was, it was a great gift. And I had, um, some really wonderful teachers that were, um, that fumbled through that with me. And, and great friends who are out doing really cool stuff in the world. Yeah, it was good. Okay, so we've covered uh, theological education, spiritual practice, uh, <laughs> social justice protest, COVID, <laughs> um, what I'm going to do with my life. Um, <laughs> that's a lot in one conversation, Carl. Yeah, it is, it is. I'll let, <laughs> I'll let you go. Um, but thank you for joining me. Uh, I feel grateful for it. Uh, it, feels, uh, I, it has been a lovely uh, hour of self-indulgence. Um, oh, <laughs> but I am, I am, uh, I'm grateful for you and for the work that you're doing, thank you. um, and helping us reflect on our circles. And I'm so glad that you're part of mine. All right. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> All right. Us. Thanks for listening. Please check out our show notes for this and other episodes at circlestories.org. While you're there, you can leave a comment, browse the archived episodes recommend a conversation we need to have, subscribe, like, and review. Break Music was provided with permission by David Lamott. Find him and links to his catalog at davidlamott.com. Show music, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? Music by Ada R. Habershon, arranged by Randa Kirschbaum, and performed by Dr. Jennifer Wilson. Don't try and follow us Circle Stories on social media because, well, I just don't have time. C.S. Lewis said... The next best thing to being wise oneself is to live in a circle of those who are.